This is ARN. Decidedly Christian, distinctly biblical, and just a little bit nuts. This is Squirrel Chatter. And welcome to the Piney Woods, ladies and gentlemen. I am your squirrel, the host, coming to you from the ARN studios, high atop the tallest tree in the Piney Woods. Good to have you with us. It is Thursday, the 15th day of February. We are halfway through the month, halfway through the second month of 2024. Time is flying by. Redeem the time. Um, you, you never get these minutes back. Um, of course, sometimes redeeming the time includes taking a nap. We'll just leave that there. <laughs> but, you know, whatever you you can nap to the glory of God. It's true. Um, this is Squirrel Chatter, a podcast dedicated to scripture, theology, history, current events, and whatever else I want to talk about. We webcast every, every Thursday. Every Monday through Friday, every Thursday through Friday, we webcast at 7.30 a.m. every Monday through Friday at 7.30 a.m. on Twitter, Facebook, and Rumble. I am just, I'm discombobulated. And then the audio podcast is available for download wherever you find fine podcasts. Squirrel Chatter is a proud member of the Christian Podcast Community. You can head on over to Christian Christian Podcast Community dot com and check out all the great curated podcasts that are over there. You are certain to find something worth listening to. I guarantee it. Uh, Thursday mornings are always tough. Uh, Wednesdays at youth group, I get home, get home loopy, get home late. (laughs) Okay. It's going to be one of those mornings. We'll just have to roll with it. I get home late from youth group on Wednesday nights. And uh, I do not want to get up early on Thursday. I, I snoozed my alarm this morning, did not want to roll out of bed, but had to get up and take a shower and get ready for the day so that I could come in here and spend some time with you folks. Um, yeah, Thursdays are always interesting. The, the, the GBTS prayer meeting is Thursday mornings at 5.30 my time, and I, I have not been attending. Um, it, it's, it's just too early. I can't, I can't, uh, get home when I do and get to bed when I do and then get up that early. Um, and so I don't, and it is something that, uh, I do miss being a part of greatly is that, that Thursday morning prayer meeting with faculty and students. Um, but you do what you do and you can only do what you can do. Um, so that's something that I'm missing out on. Um, but I, uh, do continue to pray for my friends down there and everything. I want to talk a little bit real quickly, a little bit more about, and why did it do that? I had a tweet ready to, to read and then it just vanished on me because I had closed the app and reopened it. So now give me a moment to find the tweet again um, that I wanted to talk about. And of course it was early yesterday, so I got to scroll back through the, the feed 
to find it. There it is. All right. This is a tweet from uh, Dr. Scott Annual talking a little bit more about Lent. I did get actually quite a bit of response to uh, my comments on Lent yesterday. Um, and one thing, I, I want you to remember what I said, that it's not a sacramental thing. Um, you do not derive God's favor or God's grace by taking part in anything to do with Lent. It is a long-held season on the church calendar. And, and again, it is a, you know, it's a good thing to prepare your heart and your mind to celebrate the resurrection of the Lord. But it is not something that imparts to you any, uh, any particular grace or favor in the sight of God. It is a man-made tradition. There's nothing in the Bible that commands this. This is not something that we are required to do. Um, but it is something that goes back to the very early church that this season was observed as Christmas or as Christmas as Easter was approaching. Um, but again, that does not give it anything beside historical weight. So Dr. Scott Daniel, who you know is a friend of mine and, and someone I respect highly and someone I've learned quite a bit about, quite a bit from, he posted on Twitter yesterday afternoon or yesterday morning, because you know, yesterday was Ash Wednesday, the beginning of Lent. And I will read his tweet and then I'm going to comment on it briefly because I agree with him. He writes, It appears that it is now cool for evangelicals to observe Lent. Children of the Reformation have traditionally rejected Lent. In fact, eating sausages on Lent was Swiss reformer Ulrich Zwingli's 95 Thesis moment, signaling his break from the Church of Rome and other reformers and Protestants after them have almost uniformly repudiated the observance. This is a famous incident where Ulrich Zwingli, um, you're, you're supposed to fast during Lent, um, according to medieval Roman tradition. Um, and so he, uh, he was caught eating sausages and he didn't care. <laughs> and it, it was a moment of, you know, I don't care what you think. <laughs> you can't come to scripture and tell me this is wrong. And I'm hungry. I'm eating sausages. And so that was a, uh, a big moment. It's actually a, an, a, an interesting event in church history. Continuing, Dr. Annual writes, it can be very profitable to set aside times in the year to remember various aspects of Christ's life as long as we do not add any extra biblical elements to our worship. Key, very key. The church year can be a tool that guides scripture reading and hymns, directing our attention to the coming life, the, to the coming life, sufferings, death, and resurrection, and ascension of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But during the Middle Ages, 
Lint, in particular, grew to embody legalistic heresy that should give pause to any Bible-believing Christian. Practices like penitence, fasting, putting ash on one's head, abstaining from meat, etc., developed with the understanding that such observances earn us merit or favor with God. That's the sacramental aspect that is not biblical and is not something that we should embrace. Dr. Daniel continues, this clearly contradicts scripture. Christ suffering suffered on our behalf, Christ sufficiently suffered on our behalf, and therefore those who believe in him need not participate in his suffering in any way, especially not in an attempt to earn favor with God. We are fully favored by God in Christ. So we ought to deliberately avoid any notion of Lent that creates theological confusion. This is very important. We certainly may use the weeks leading up to Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday to intentionally remember various occasions in the life of Christ that led him to suffer for us on the cross. But we do so not to participate in his suffering or earn merit with God, but remembering that Jesus cried, it is finished, having accomplished all the suffering necessary for our redemption. So these unbiblical elements of Lent that were developed during the medieval period, really. Um, Lent in the early church and Lent in 13th century England are entirely different things. <laughs> Um, in their observance, because all this sacramentalism had accrued to the practice, and and we are right to reject that. But we don't need to throw the baby out with the bathwater, and we certainly don't need to. the the Protestant the Protestant observation of Lent is going to be completely different from the. Roman Catholic papist observation of Lent as um, uh, in, in last Sunday's rector's forum at uh, um, Hil uh, uh, was it uh, St. Luke's Anglican Hilton Head Island, J.D. Coke talked about this very thing that, that the, the observance of Lent among Protestants is not sacramental. <laughs> it, it, it's, it's, it's memorial, it's preparatory, it's a, it's a time to, you know, for self-examination and whatnot, but it's not anything that we do to earn God's favor. I said that yesterday when I talked about Lent, but I didn't emphasize it, and apparently that led to some confusion and some, because like I said, I got some comments um, there's like, no, no, that wasn't what I was saying at all. And I wanted to uh, read Dr. Annual's tweet because he, he is saying the same thing I said, but that's all he's saying. <laughs> he's not saying the other stuff that I said. And so by reading this tweet, I wanted to focus in on that aspect that, like I said, I mentioned it, but I did not dwell upon it. And apparently I needed to say it more firmly than I did, judging from the comments that I got. 
<clears throat> so you can observe Lent to the glory of God, but not in a sacramental way. Um, it is a man-made tradition. Um, there's nothing wrong with tradition. We all have traditions, okay? The trouble that we have with Roman Catholicism and their view of tradition is they elevate the traditions of man above the commands of Scripture. Not equal to, above. And, and that's a topic for another time, but it is certainly true. So when we, we reject the Roman Catholic view of the authority of tradition, that doesn't mean we have to reject all tradition. Getting together on Thanksgiving and eating turkey and watching football is a tradition. There's nothing wrong with it. But it's not something that is biblically required. And it is not something that we should judge each other over either for or against, but it doesn't in any way impart to us any kind of favor with God. Same thing with Advent, same thing with Lent, you know. We are commanded, you know, I mean, the early church didn't even celebrate Christmas. You know, the big, the big Christian celebration every year is Easter. <laughs> and it's the resurrection of our Lord and Savior. That's the key event. That's the, you know, the, the, the Gospels, all four Gospels talk about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and talk about it for chapters and chapters and chapters. All of the um, epistles talk about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. I think all of them mention it. I'd have to go back and look, but it's... It's certainly implied, if not explicitly mentioned. I'm thinking some of the smaller ones might not, might not say that. But, you know, the longer ones all do. Um, but they don't mention his birth beyond the fact that, you know, the Lord was incarnate. He be, he, the, God the Son became man. Um, that is mentioned. But, but a celebration of his birth is not a big deal. It's not, it's not something that, that we are told to observe. But the death, burial, and resurrection, we are told to observe. So preparing your heart during this season of Lent, and remember Lent is just an Anglo-Saxon word related to lengthen. It's talking about the days getting longer because it's spring. Um Preparing your heart to celebrate the death, burial, and resurrection during this Lenten season is not wrong. But adopting papist sacramentalism certainly is. So traditions are fine. They are just not equal to and certainly not superior to Scripture. And as I said, the Roman Catholic view of tradition is that it is superior to Scripture. And we reject that as good Protestants that we are. All right, what do we got coming up today? We have scripture reading from the Legacy Standard Bible. We have prayers from the Book of Common Prayer. We have a reading from John MacArthur's Daily Readings from the Life of Christ, Volume 1. 
And it's Theology Thursday. We are going to finish chapter 19 of the Law of God. There are seven paragraphs, and we are on paragraph seven. So we will finish that up this morning. All right. Let us begin, as is our practice, with the prayer of confession from the 2019 Book of Common Prayer. Almighty and most merciful Father, we have erred and strayed from your ways like lost sheep. We have followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts. We have offended against your holy laws. We have left undone those things which we ought to have done, and we have done those things which we ought not to have done. And apart from your grace, there is no health in us. O Lord, have mercy upon us. Spare all those who confess their faults. Restore all those who are penitent, according to your promises declared to all people in Christ Jesus our Lord. And grant, O most merciful Father, for his sake, that we may now live a godly, righteous, and sober life, to the glory of your holy name. Amen. Grant to your faithful people, merciful Lord, pardon and peace, that we may be cleansed from all our sins and serve you with a quiet mind, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. And now our prayer for the reading of the word. Blessed Lord, who caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant us so to hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and the comfort of your holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Our scripture reading today is Genesis 46 and Psalm 46. Genesis 46. So Israel set out with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, Here I am. And he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you a great nation there. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I myself will also bring you up again. And Joseph will close your eyes with his hand. Then Jacob arose from Beersheba, and the sons of Israel carried their father Jacob and their little ones and their wives in the wagons which Pharaoh had sent to carry him. And they took their livestock and their possessions, which they had accumulated in the land of Canaan, and they came to Egypt, Jacob and all his seed with him, his sons and his grandsons with him, his daughters and his granddaughters, and all his seed he brought with him to Egypt. Now these are the names of the sons of Israel, of Jacob and his sons, who were coming to Egypt. Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, the sons of Reuben, Hanok and Palu and Hezron and Carmi, the sons of Simeon, Jemuel and Jamin and Ohad and Jochen and Zohar and Shaul, the son of a Canaanite woman, the sons of Levi, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari, the sons of Judah, Ur and Onan and Shelah and Perez and Zerah, but Ur and Onan died in the land of Canaan. And the sons of Perez were Hezron and Hamul, the sons of Issachar, Tola and Puva and Iob and Shimron, the sons of Zebulon, Serad and Elon and Jehaliel, 
These are the sons of Leah, whom she bore to Jacob in Paddan Aram, and with his daughter Dinah. All his sons and daughters numbered 33. The sons of Gad, Ziphion and Haggai, Shuni and Esbon, Eri and Arodi and Arili, the sons of Asher, Imna and Ishva and Ishvi and Bariah and their sister Sarah, and the sons of Bariah, Haber and Machiel. These are the sons of Zilpah, whom Laban gave to his daughter Leah, and she bore to Jacob these sixteen persons. The sons of Jacob's wife Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin. Now to Joseph in the land of Egypt were born Manasseh and Ephraim, whom Aseneth, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On, bore to him. The sons of Benjamin, Bela and Becher and Ashbel, Gera and Naaman, Ehi and Rosh, Mupin and Hupim and Ard. These are the sons of Rachel who were born to Jacob. There were fourteen persons in all. The sons of Dan, Husham, the sons of Naphtali, Jehaziel and Guni and Yezer and Shilam. These are the sons of Bilhah, who Laban gave to his daughter Rachel, and she bore these to Jacob. There were seven persons in all. All the persons belonging to Jacob who came to Egypt, who came out of his loins, excluding the wives of Jacob's sons, were sixty-six persons in all. And the sons of Joseph, who were born to him in Egypt, were two. All the persons of the house of Jacob, who came to Egypt, were seventy. Now he sent Judah before him to Joseph, to point out the way before him to Goshen. And they came into the land of Goshen. And Joseph harnessed his chariot and went up to Goshen to meet his father Israel. As soon as he appeared before him, he fell on his neck and wept on his neck a long time. Then Israel said to Joseph, Now I can die since I have seen your face that you are still alive. And Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and say to him, My brothers and my father's household who were in the land of Canaan have come to me, and the men are shepherds, for they have been keepers of livestock, and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all they have. And it will be when Pharaoh calls you and says, What is your occupation? Then you shall say, Your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth and until now, both we and our fathers, that you may live in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. And now Psalm 46. Psalm 46. For the choir director of the sons of Korah, according to Alamoth, a song. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore we will not fear, though the earth should change, and though the mountains shake into the heart of the sea, Though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake at its lofty pride, Selah. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy dwelling places of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She will not be shaken. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations roar, the kingdoms shake. He gives his voice, the earth melts. Yahweh of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob... Excuse me, the God of Jacob is our strength, 
Selah. Come behold the works of Yahweh, who has appointed desolations in the earth. He makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts up the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Cease striving and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Yahweh of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Selah. This is the word of the Lord. And now our reading from John MacArthur's Daily Readings from the Life of Christ. Today's devotional is entitled, Discerning False Prophets, Seeing Their Converts. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then, you will know them by their fruits. Matthew seven nineteen and 20. Dr. MacArthur writes, We can spot false prophets by the kind of people they attract. Their converts will have the same kind of superficial, self-centered, unbiblical orientation as they do. Of this kind of attraction, Peter says, Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of the truth will be maligned. 2 Peter 2.2 Many folks gravitate to false, false teachers because these men propagate what the majority of the people want to hear and believe. See 2 Timothy 4.3. God has not ordained false prophets, but within his will he allows them to exist. And it is within his purpose that false factions develop. For there must also be factions among you, so that those who are approving, those who are approved may become evident among you. 1 Corinthians 11.19. Factions often attract followers of false teachers, and in a sense, this protects genuine saints by separating the chaff from the wheat in the church. Ultimately, the Lord makes sure that the converts of false prophets who do not bear good fruit get cut down and thrown into the fire of judgment. Peter says they are bringing swift destruction upon themselves, 2 Peter 2.1, see also Jeremiah 23.30 and 40, and John 15. Two and six. A watchful, discerning, vigilant believer, armed with the word of truth, will be able to isolate false teachers and withdraw from them, because he or she will know them by their fruits. Ask yourself. Discussions like these often get us labeled as haughty and narrow-minded. How do you handle these kinds of accusations? What will some people never understand? Why will some people never understand your concern for church purity? That is a, a good word today. Always needing to be on the lookout for false teachers because sadly they are everywhere. All right. It is Theology Thursday. We are in chapter 19 of the Law of God. There are seven paragraphs, and today we're doing paragraph seven. I will read each paragraph, and then when we get to paragraph seven, we will break that down and give it our best go to understand. Excuse me, just a moment. Oh, runny nose and a little bit of cough this morning. Probably lack of sleep or just being around all those 
youth at youth group last night, I could be, uh, I could have picked something up. Um, there's always something running around in the school among the students. And so even when you get together with the students outside of school, it can still <laughs> wear you down. All right. Chapter 19 of the law of God. Paragraph one. God gave to Adam a law of universal obedience written on his heart and a particular precept of not eating the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, by which he bound him and all his posterity to personal, entire, exact, and perpetual obedience, promised life upon the fulfilling and threatened death upon the breach of it, and endued him with power and ability to keep it. Paragraph 2. The same law that was first written in the heart of man continued to be a perfect rule of righteousness after the fall and was delivered by God upon Mount Sinai in Ten Commandments and written in two tables, the first, the four first containing our duty towards God and the other six our duty to man. Paragraph 3. Besides this law, commonly called moral, God was pleased to give the people of Israel ceremonial laws containing several typical ordinances, partly of worship, preconfiguring Christ, his graces, actions, sufferings, and benefits, and partly holding forth diverse instructions of moral duties, all which ceremonial laws being appointed only to the time of Reformation are, by Jesus Christ, the true Messiah and only lawgiver, who was furnished with power from, from the Father for that end abrogated and taken away. Paragraph 4. To them also he gave sundry judicial laws, which expired altogether with the state of that people, not obliging any now by virtue of that institution, their general equity only being of moral use. Paragraph 5. The moral law does forever bind all, as well as justified as well justified persons as others, to the obedience thereof, and that not only in regard of the matter contained in it, but also in respect of the authority of God the Creator who gave it. Neither does Christ in the gospel any way dissolve, but much strengthen this obligation. Paragraph six. Although true believers are not under the law as a covenant of works to be thereby justified or condemned, yet it is of great use to them as well as to others in that as a rule of life informing them of the will of God and their duty, it directs and binds them to walk accordingly, discovering also the sinful pollutions of their natures, hearts, and lives, so as examining themselves thereby. They make, <clears throat> excuse me, they may come to further conviction of humiliation for and hatred against sin, together with a clearer sight of the need they have of Christ and the perfection of his obedience. It is likewise of use to the regenerate to restrain their corruptions, in that it forbids sin and the threatenings of it serve to show what even their sins deserve and what afflictions in this life they may expect for them, although freed from the curse and the unalloyed rigor thereof. The promise of it likewise shows them God's approbation of obedience, and what blessings they may expect upon the performance thereof. 
though not as due to them by the law as a covenant of works. So as man's doing good and refraining from evil because of the law, because the law encourages to the one and deters from the other, is no evidence of, it be, of his being under the law and not under grace. And now our paragraph for today, paragraph 7. Neither are the, afore, neither are the aforementioned uses of the law contrary to the grace of the gospel, but do sweetly comply with it. The Spirit of Christ subduing and enabling the will of man to do that freely and cheerfully, which the will of God revealed in the law requires to be done. So as we've gone through this chapter, we've looked at these uses of the law in the life of the believer, that we cannot in any way be saved by keeping the law because we cannot keep the law perfectly. Um, we have also seen clearly the divisions in the law, that there were there are moral duties which are absolute to all humans everywhere. And then there are regulations which applied to Israel between the giving of the law at Mount Sinai and the coming of the Messiah. Um, and and that, the, the end of that period was, I mean, pronounced by Jesus. It was foretold by Jeremiah in Jeremiah 30. And it's pronounced by Jesus at the Last Supper when he says, as he raised the cup, this is the new covenant in my blood. He was inaugurating and ushering in that new covenant period. It was symbolized during the crucifixion when the veil in the in the tabernacle, the veil in the temple that was between the holy place and the holy of holies, the holy of holies being where the Ark of the Covenant was, when that veil was torn from top to bottom, that no longer would believers, no longer would people of God need a priest to enter the presence of God for them. But through Christ, our perfect priest, we have free access to God the Father, that we can come into his presence at any time for the purposes of prayer and worship. So the ceremonial laws were done away with. Their, their end was predicted and their end was accomplished. But the moral precepts are still applicable because God's standard of right and wrong hasn't changed. Things that were wrong, morally wrong in 100 BC are still morally wrong in 180 or 2024-80. So the moral standard doesn't change, but this doesn't in any way you know, it's not contrary to the law of grace, the grace of the gospel. It, 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 it doesn't, you know, having, having and upholding and desiring to keep God's moral standards doesn't impinge on the grace of the gospel. How is the phrase here in the paragraph? Neither are the aforementioned uses of the law contrary to the grace of the gospel, but do sweetly comply with it. Um, we're given Galatians 3.21. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. 
For if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. We do not, excuse me, we do not become uh, righteous by keeping the law. This is, this is one of the, the uh, again, the, the, the sacramental elements of observing Lent that we spoke about earlier. We can't become righteous through ceremony, through human action, for abstaining from foods or, you know, any of that. None of that will bring us to righteousness. The only thing that will bring us to righteousness is the perfect life and the sacrificial death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Only thing that's going to bring us to righteousness. And that was the only thing that would bring ancient Israelites to righteousness, was believing the promises of God. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham was not counted righteousness by obeying the law. And, and no, no one who is saved has ever been counted righteous by keeping the law. Always saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. Either, as I said, in the Old Testament, believing the promises that God would send a Redeemer, and in the New Testament, believing that God would has sent a Redeemer in the person of Jesus Christ. It's always solus Christus. It's always in Christ alone. And so keeping the law was never a way of righteousness. That doesn't mean the law is not important. As we've looked at, and, and in, in studying Deuteronomy on Tuesdays and Wednesdays, the law, uh, keeping the law brought earthly blessings and disobeying the law brought earthly curses. That's still applicable. The law still tells us God's expected standards of behavior. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. That's how we're supposed to live our lives. So that, that doesn't take away the fact that we still need Christ to be saved. We can't be righteous by keeping the law. Never could, never will be. But the standards of the law still are still the standards. So it's not contrary to the law, to the grace of the gospel. It complies with it. Um, in the Great Commission, Jesus said, you know, go into all, make disciples of all the nations, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. We are to observe the commandments of God. You know, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments, Jesus said. I, I think we've, we often lose sight of the fact that we still have an obligation to be obedient. I mean, if he is our Lord and Master, um, you know, Paul's favorite uh, favorite phrase to apply to himself is slave of Christ. <laughs> you know, a slave obeys his master. A slave is obligated to obey his master. A slave, in reality, has no choice but to obey his master. And so to be a faithful slave is to be an obedient slave. As slaves of Christ... We should be obedient to his commandments 
and and therefore the law is our guide into how we are to behave. Uh, you know, specifically in cases of morality, you know, I mean, I, I, nine of the Ten Commandments are directly applicable to the life of every Christian. The only one I'm leaving out is the Sabbath Commandments, and we've talked about that in other places. And I know there are those who disagree with me on that. They're wrong. <laughs> Just to put, not put too fine a point on it. Um, it's, it's, and that's a tweak at friends of mine who are Sabbatarians. And yes, they're still my friends. <laughs> they might not like me much anymore, but actually that's not true. I, but I have friends that I disagree with on the Sabbath and they disagree with me. And it's, it's a good topic for an after dinner discussion, but it's not something to break fellowship over. It's, it's a lot like, um, you know, different views on eschatology or different views on baptism. Uh, I have my views. Therefore, I believe those who have contrary views to be wrong, but that doesn't place them outside of the faith. Um, we can, I can fellowship with them over the gospel. If they have a different gospel, that's where we have a problem. So is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. Yeah, so the promises are apart from the law. Now there, you know, there are blessings and curses for keeping the law, but those blessings and curses are not the promises of salvation. All right. The next clause says the Spirit of Christ subduing and enabling the will of man to do that freely and cheerfully which the will of God revealed in the law requires to be done. So the Spirit of God subduing and enabling the will of man to do that freely and cheerfully, which the will of God revealed in the law requires to be done. So what he's saying is the Spirit of Christ indwelling the heart of the believer enables the will of the believer to freely and cheerfully do the will of God, the requirements of which are revealed in the law. Ezekiel 36, 27, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to do my judgments. If you go back and look at Ezekiel 36, he's talking to believers. Now, specifically in Ezekiel, he's talking to Israel. But it's an eschatological passage talking about the new covenant that was to come, where God is saying, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to do my judgments. The Abrahamic covenant give, given all the way back in Genesis 12 tells us that in the family of Abraham, all the families of the earth would be blessed. That was the promise of the Messiah. So the the fact that Gentiles would be included in the new covenant is hinted at way back in Genesis, and it's specifically laid out in the New Testament. Romans 9, 10, and 11 talks about the fact that this was a mystery. Ephesians talks about this too, that the fact that the Jews and Gentiles would be united in one body in Christ 
was a mystery in the Old Testament. And it's something that has now been revealed to us. So we know that Gentiles are included in the Old or in the New Covenant. So when we read the New Covenant passages in the Old Testament, we can understand that that includes us too. So when Ezekiel says, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to do my judgments. He's talking about the indwelling Holy Spirit enabling the believer to walk according to God's moral precepts. Um, not perfectly, but we desire to do it. And that's the thing. The will of man desires. The will of the redeemed man desires to obey God. And that desire causes us to obey God more than we would otherwise. Um, but still, the body of sin, you know, drags us back. It's a struggle. It's one of the reasons why we're looking forward to eternity when our sin nature has been removed and it will no longer be a struggle to obey the law. And what a glorious day that will be. All right. That is chapter 19 of the 1689. Next week, we will chart start chapter 20, which I haven't even looked at in recent times. So I couldn't tell you offhand what chapter 20 is about. But we'll know next week, right? Because uh, I, I won't go into it cold. I will look it over before we get there. <laughs> All right. Let us now recite our faith in the words of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Now the colic for the sixth Sunday after Epiphany. O God, who before the passion of your only begotten Son revealed his glory upon the holy mountain, grant that we, beholding by faith the light of his countenance, may be strengthened to bear our cross and be changed into his likeness from glory to glory, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. For guidance, we pray. Heavenly Father, in you we live and move and have our being. We humbly pray you so to guide and govern us by your Holy Spirit, that in all the cares and occupations of our life, we may not forget you, but may remember that we are ever walking in your sight. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. And for the unrepentant, we pray. Merciful God, you desire not the death of sinners, but rather than they should turn to you and live. And through your only Son, you've revealed yourself as the God who pardons iniquity. Have mercy on the unrepentant and those who do not believe. Awaken in them by your word and Holy Spirit a deep sense of their sinfulness and peril. Take from them all ignorance, hardness of heart, and contempt of your word. 
Grant them to know and feel that there is no other name under heaven, given among men by which they must be saved, but only the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so bring them home and number them among your children, that they may be yours forever through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, world without end. Amen. All right, folks, that is Squirrel Chatter for this Thursday. Have a wonderful day. The weekend is almost upon us, which means we get to go to church on Sunday. Um, this is the third Sunday of February, so I will be preaching at Blackfoot Community Bible Church in Ovando this week. Um, if you're able to get out there, it would be great to see you. Um, uh, always, always enjoy being with the saints in Ovando. Great little church. Um, and so I'm looking forward to preaching. We are in Ephesians chapter 1. Um, a message I didn't get to preach last month because of freezing rain. Um, and that is indeed the message that I will be bringing this week. Um, we're going to be looking at the longest sentence in the Bible, <laughs> Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, um, which in the original was one sentence. <laughs> Although, how can you tell? Because there was no punctuation in the original, but just from the construction of it, not being a Greek scholar myself, I have been assured that it is, in fact, one sentence. So that is, uh, that's the take I'm taking on it, but... Uh, and and it, it's it, I hope it's going to be a good message. But that's this Blackfoot Community Bible Church in Ovando this Sunday. I will be preaching. Wherever you are, make sure you get to church. We'll talk more about that tomorrow. So as you go through this Thursday, do the things you ought to do. Don't do the things you ought not do. Whatever you do, do it for the glory of the Lord. We'll see you again here tomorrow for another episode of Squirrel Chatter. Take care. God bless. Squirrel Chatter is recorded in front of a live studio hamster.